0: Hello and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to have you listening and I really appreciate so many people from all over the world who are joining our ranks. We feature interesting conversation with creative people in all areas. And today I'd like you to meet Susan Mara Bregman. She's a Boston-based photographer and her mission is to take and capture the vintage neon signs across New England before they disappear one photograph at a time. She's got a terrific book that we'll be featuring called New England Neon, available wherever fine books are sold. You can check out her website, www.rednickel.com. And we're about to explore the essence, the appeal, the cool retro feel of it all, of neon signs. So strap on your seatbelt and let's go cruising. So on this podcast, dear listeners, imagination is key power of the mind, theater of the mind, because we're talking with this great lady about her book, New England Neon. And these are the signs that we grew up with. Her name is, as mentioned, Susan Mara Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N. And it's great to welcome you here. How about doing a radio or podcast on something you have to look at? Isn't that cool?
1: I know. I love it. People do have to use their imaginations.
0: In the days of the neon signs, we were able to just lose ourselves, and we didn't really appreciate what we had, perhaps. Before we get started with how you did all this and why, can you describe the the neon experience and when it was really hot? I mean, I read in the back of the book that, uh, what, around the 30s or so until the 60s primarily?
1: Yeah, that was pretty much what I would call the heyday of neon from the 30s through the 60s. Neon was first commercialized in the 1920s, and that's when a few signs started being Mm -hmm. installed at um, the story is the first sign was a um, an auto dealership a Packard dealership in Los Angeles but that story has possibly been debunked Uh. but um, regardless I'd say from the mid-30s till about 1965 and the 40s and 50s were really the heyday of Neon.
0: I love the look. The Art Deco stuff is amazing, and we'll get into some of the beautiful uh, shots that you take. You are a photographer by trade, among other things. Among other things, yes. You went to Vegas and saw the, quote, museum. What is the Neon Museum all about?
1: The Neon Museum in Las Vegas is this really fabulous place. It's outside downtown Vegas, and it started pretty much as a group of people who were just salvaging signs as they were being torn down, and it turned into this wonderful museum. They have tours and and their goal is to save the Las Vegas Neon mm-hmm. Legacy and they have they are open to the public and they have some signs that are restored and others that are just sitting there in all their vintage glory with the broken light bulbs and the rust <laughs> and the peeling paint but it is what has inspired me on my neon journey
0: and your neon journey is now the subject of this great book the New England Neon Book basically that is the be all and end all. And how did you go about doing this? Did you have a game plan? I'm going to go to each state and I know where these things are. I'm going to find out as I go. What was the...
1: It's a little bit of that and a little bit of serendipity. I had a game plan. I had been taking pictures in Boston for years anyway. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll write a book about Boston signs. Then I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book about Massachusetts signs And um, gradually it evolved into New England Neon, and it's a combination. It was a little bit of research. um, You know, there's information online, there's information from people I know. And so I would know where I wanted to go, but then there was also serendipity. I would just see signs, I would run across signs, and, you know, so it's a combination of that.
0: Signs, like the ones in the book, really do remind us about a time and a place and our childhood and. All kinds of things. They really have character, don't they?
1: They remind people of special times in their lives. So I would often hear from people seeing my photographs who would have special memories of some of the places that the signs Mm. um, represent. So people would tell me, you know, their parents had a first date at the Rosebud Diner or had a student apartment in Union Square, Alston, overlooking Twin Donuts. And um, certainly everyone who was a student in, in Alston. Is familiar with Blanchard's.
0: Oh yes, yes. When you think about the kinds of establishments that you have in the book, too, I mean, so many of these are the establishments of the everyday person. I'm going to say it that way. These are not necessarily the highfalutin clubs you can't afford to get into. These are donut shops and uh,
1: bowling alleys, bowling
0: alleys and diners and hot- motels. So it's it's a part of America that. We want to savor.
1: Absolutely. You know? It's a part of America. It was a time when there were mom and pop shops up and down Main Street. It was a time, especially in the 40s and 50s, when automobile culture was just starting and motels were popping up everywhere. Gas stations had neon signs. I saw a lot of bowling alleys. I saw candle pins. I saw duck pins. I saw mm-hmm. 10 pins. Um, I found this really rusty, almost gone sign for a skating rink in New Haven. And, um, you know, even um, police stations, there are police stations in Connecticut, state troopers that have neon signs at their um, barracks.
0: Were these signs and are these signs a hassle to keep up, particularly in the old days? I mean, it's gas. You have to have them, uh, I'm sure, adjusted and, and looked after. How, how much of a hassle was it to have a neon sign?
1: Well, at the time, it was the prevailing technology. So everybody had them and it was very common and there were people, there were there were shops that installed neon and maintained it. These days, it's a little more complicated because technology is evolving and there are fewer and fewer so- shops that know how to restore neon.
0: As I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, Susan, of the sound. The buzz of the neon was always something that stuck with me.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't quite know what makes that buzz. I assume it's the electrodes. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a scientist.
0: Well, you don't have to be on this podcast, but you know what I'm talking about. A I know exactly team. what you're talking it's, about. It's really cool. It's so unique to to what what it's all about. So we're talking about New England. Is there a particular state? There are six of them that is uh, more likely to have the really cool ones, or are they spread out?
1: Well, they're certainly spread out, but you know, Massachusetts just because it's bigger and it has the bigger population centers has more signs. But I was pleasantly surprised by Rhode Island. Mm. Rhode Island had a ton of signs that I really, really like. They have these um, signs for hot wieners, which is a Rhode Island specialty. Yes. Along with coffee milk and um, cabinets.
0: Cabinets, which for those who don't know are?
1: Milkshakes. Milkshakes.
0: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) And um, Rhode Island has, um, you know, an old theater. I went to Brown, and I did not appreciate that the theater that I went to – um, when I was an undergrad is actually a historic theater, the Avon Theater on Thayer Street. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but they're really everywhere. People certainly love and respond to the Weir's Beach sign on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. A lot of people I know say, oh, my God, I used to go there for the summer. So um, and, and you know, the lobster pot in Provincetown.
0: Right. I'm looking at uh, just the cover of the book and there is Weir's Beach right there. But on the back, there's a very famous Shell gas station sign in Boston on Memorial Drive, I guess. In
1: Cambridge. It, it's actually in Drive. Cambridge. Yeah. I say
0: Boston because you can see it from everywhere mm-hmm. across the river. And that's one of those signs. It looks like it's been there a million years.
1: It has, although it has been restored. And technically, it's it's a replica of the oh, old sign. Yeah, okay. but they did a brilliant job. Um, that sign has been there, I believe, since the 40s. It was Built in the 30s, but it stood on the Boston side of the river where Shell had a um, headquarters building. And then it moved to its current location on Magazine Street and Memorial Drive where there's a gas station and it's been there ever since.
0: It's so remarkable as I look through your wonderful book, Susan, again, the retro looks – that today would be pretty hot and fabulous. For instance, here's one on page forty six, the Oh the Miss Florence. M- Miss Florence Diner, which looks like something very chic today. That's nineteen forty one.
1: I know. Well, those are very streamlined letters. That is mid-century typography there. Um, And that is the Miss Florence in Northampton. And it's been around since the 40s. And um, I believe it's under new ownership right now, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's hung in there.
0: You were mentioning to me prior to us coming on to do the podcast a little something about fonts. And text and the way these letters might show up on a particular sign. That did and does matter, doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, first you want the sign to be visible and easy for people to read and recognize. But the other thing that I love about these neon signs is they are tracking history. So the signs from the 1930s tend to have Art Deco design art deco fonts. The signs from the 40s are a little more streamlined. It's a little more transitional. Then you get into the 50s and those are sort of more like you see a lot of cursive and you see some of the classic mid-century designs. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really, you can trace history through the evolution of neon signs.
0: You think showbiz when you think about neon, certainly think about Vegas, but also theaters. And you have a little piece on the Paramount center now which is on washington street Mm -hmm. in downtown boston very historic part of the city the theater area for years that was dark and things and that happens with a lot of these thankfully that one came back tell us about the paramount
1: yeah that one came back in a big way Mm. um the paramount is very interesting because it was it was an art deco movie palace it was built in the 30s and at the time it had accounts vary but it had about 1500 maybe 1700 seats That was considered an intimate theater in the day because um, it was in comparison to all the large music halls, the vaudeville halls that were around those days. And, you know, the Paramount had a great run. It was um, I've seen vintage photos of it from the 50s. But then it started losing patronage. Um, Mm. A lot of theaters did. It was competition from television. It was competition from the suburbs. That part of Washington Street was maybe not undergoing the best of times. And um, the theater eventually closed, I think, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. But the Paramount had a very happy ending. Because the sign was restored. Well, first the city, the Paramount was made a city landmark. Then the sign was restored by a private developer as part of a, a deal with the city, and then um, Emerson, purchased it and restored it, and it's it's stunning. Um, and I think what's interesting about the Paramount also, is I like to compare it to the Pilgrim Theater. Oh yes, the Pilgrim. Yes was just a couple of blocks farther south on Washington in what we now know as the Combat Zone. And the Pilgrim just suffered a completely different fate. Um, It was built around the... It was actually built earlier than the Paramount. It was originally a music hall. Then it became the Pilgrim Theater. It showed um, mainstream movies well into the 40s and 50s. Um, But starting in about the 60s, I think, it started showing... X-rated movies to survive, mm-hmm. and then it got caught up. Um, then its new owner Joe Savino, I believe. Yes, I'm looking at okay, it. Okay, right good. Now. You can you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> Joe Savino um, tried to turn it into a burlesque hall because he used to work at the old Howard Theater in um, Scully Square, which is a burlesque house, and um, that lasted a few years. And that had a little brush with notoriety as part of the Wilbur Mills scandal in yes. the 70s.
0: We all remember that the mm. the basin the tidal basin. basin Fanny Fen- Fox
1: the Argentine firecracker
0: Never forgot that
1: so Wilbur made an, I'm sorry, Representative Mills made <laughs> yes. made a surprise appearance on the stage of the Pilgrim when Fanny Fox was headlining, and that pretty much ended his career.
0: But what a way to go out.
1: What a way to go. You know? And um, then, unlike the Paramount, the Pilgrim was demolished. Mm. So that's um, a sad ending to that story.
0: I've noticed something in, in a... Observing the pictures, which are great, by the way, that I never thought of before. And it probably was because I haven't seen all these neon signs in one place. So many of them have something in common, an arrow. Yes. Tell me about this. It makes sense. You know, direct it right here, folks, if you want the best hot dogs.
1: Absolutely. Um I love the arrows on neon signs. I love the flashing arrows. I love the arrows with the light bulbs, um, the, the chasing light bulbs, as they call them. Yes. And I think it was, as you said, I think it was a way to compete. You know, once upon a time, streets were lined with shops and lined with signs, and they were trying to get people to come into their store. You see it a lot on liquor store signs.
0: You do. That's very good. But I'm looking at a page here. That has a couple of diners, the Royal Diner and Al's French Fries. And again, two different usages yeah. of the, the arrow. But uh, people should start to pay attention when they read your book or start <laughs> to see these sounds.
1: I know. It's a theme.
0: You must have several favorite stories, but maybe a couple you could share with us about things we haven't mentioned yet?
1: Sure. Well, um, let's look at the Hilltop Steakhouse, for example. Everybody knows the Hilltop. It's on Route 1 in Saugus. It is a giant cactus. And of yeah. course, there used to be um, used to be the cows. Who have been dispersed?
0: Plastic cows that often were toyed with. <laughs> let's put it mildly.
1: I know, really, so sad. So the hilltop. The hilltop was installed in 1961. It's 68 feet tall, has a cactus, and um, just a landmark and part of all the classic signs on Route One. When Route One really was um, was a mecca for neon oh, sign lovers. Absolutely. Um, just up the street from the um, mini mini bowl with the um, yeah. with the orange dinosaur, and um, the hilltop closed um, in 2013, and the sign was saved. The city city of Saugus, I believe, stepped in to save the sign, or town of Saugus. Mm-hmm. and um, the new developers have incorporated the sign into their new development, and the sign was it was restored, but. The neon was removed. Oh. And this is a trend. This is a trend you see a lot. Even when signs are restored, often the neon is replaced with LED. And um, in, in the Hilltops case, also space, they took the words um, steakhouse away and they left room for the names of the tenants of the new development. Uh, okay. So in my mind, I'm glad they saved the sign. I'm glad there's still a cactus on Route 1. But it's not the same.
0: Well, it does point out, though, the sentimentality. It's the same thing with, with the famous Sitco sign in Boston. I know we're being a little Boston-centric, but we can be. And uh, most of the world has seen that on Red Sox World Series coverage. <laughs> but the Sitco sign for years, you know, has been a staple. It's not the most glorious-looking sign, It's but it's there. Mm-hmm. You can't miss it. Yeah. And uh, I guess it's still being protected, right?
1: Yes, although we don't know the details right now. Um, the Sitco sign was put up in 1965. It replaced an earlier sign from 1940-ish um, for City Service, which was the same corporation. There was a corporate rebranding, and they changed City Service to Sitco mm-hmm. and um, came up with that new logo, the Trimark, as they call that triangle. And um, it was neon for quite a long time. But that was restored or renovated or updated or whatever you want to call it, um, and now it's LED. Right. It's actually on a second generation of LED. So
0: LED, we know what that is, and we know that that's the wave of the present and the future. But are there people going back to neon in your travels? Have you met some people who refuse to budge and want to stay with the neon?
1: Yes, it's mixed. But um, certainly there are people who are committed to keeping the neon glowing, to restoring their neon signs, They work with local companies wherever they are, and they update their signs periodically. Maybe they give it a new fresh coat of paint. They might have to replace some broken tubes. But neon can last quite a long time. You just have to maintain it.
0: By the way, I've interviewed many people who have published through Arcadia. Arcadia is a wonderful organization that, particularly for things like this, I mean, there are so many books and so many Mm -hmm. topics that relate to our culture and our history. So you really... Hooked on with a good company here.
1: Yeah, I really like working with them. And what they do is um, they're based in South Carolina, so it's um, and they're publishing their print. Their presses are um, in the U.S., so mm-hmm. it's a U.S. made book, um, which is important to me. And they do. They work with authors all over the country, and their specialty are these local histories. And it's really a wonderful thing they're doing because they are preserving local stories and local um, local authors really
0: interesting. You and I were looking through the book together, and uh, we both stopped on one particular donut shop, Twin Donuts. Twin Donuts. And it's probably one of the simplest signs, but I remember seeing that so many times in Union Square, Alston, near – well, near a whole bunch of things. And that sign stands out to me. It just says it all says everything you need to know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is It is one of my favorite signs. I love that sign. I happen to live close to it, which makes it easy for me to photograph. But um, it, it, it's a mid-century sign. It's probably from about 1950, the very early 50s. It's lowercase. It's cursive. It's pink. And um, you can see the structure behind it, which I also like. And it's mm-hmm. very simple. It's very sweet. And, you know, sometimes the letters go out. Last time I went by, um, I think nuts maybe was <laughs> missing. Yes. So but, Twindo, Twindo, yeah. but um, I was lucky enough to find it in it all its glory a few times. That's and, that's um, the thing um, about Dion. You're sign. absolutely
0: right, Susan. That's the thing. You know, every once in a while you, oh my God, the letter P is missing, and uh, somebody has to get up there and. Fix that, son of a gun.
1: Yep. Got to get up on a ladder. And that's another interesting thing because a lot of these signs, you know, are endangered. And one of the things that can endanger some of them are zoning regulations. And sometimes people would tell me that their sign was grandfathered into the zoning. And if they took it down even to repair it, they wouldn't be able to put Mm. it back up again.
0: Hmm. Well, you've just tickled my fancy enough to recommend the book to listeners to this podcast and beyond. How can people get New England Neon? What's the best way?
1: Well, there's many ways. It's certainly available wherever books are sold. Um, but you can also get it from directly from me and I will sign your copy. And that's at New England Neon Book. Com.
0: New England Neon Book com. Terrific. And I know you're out there taking photographs all the time and all working time. creatively. And I hope you continue to do things like this and we'll have you back.
1: Well, thank you. It's been great.
0: Susan Bregman. It's called New England Neon. And wasn't it fun using our imaginations <laughs> for this uh, segment? Thank you so much, Susan.
1: Thank you, Jordan. <clears throat>
0: This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mic with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mic is produced at Shark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.